Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse, who was charged with the reckless homicide of Joseph Rosenbaum, the intentional homicide of Anthony Huber, and the attempted intentional homicide of Gage Grosskreutz. As Rittenhouse was the undisputed shooter of all three men, his legal team argued that the shootings were in self-defense. In our last episode, we continued our examination of the prosecution's closing with their arguments for why the defendant should be found guilty on the counts related to Richie McGinnis, Anthony Huber, and Gage Grosskreutz. On today's installment, we continue that examination with the prosecutor's arguments regarding Rittenhouse's recklessness as evinced by the damage caused by his semi-automatic rifle. That's coming up right after the break. 60 the video clip begins at a distance from Grosskreutz, but as it moves towards him, we see that his lower right bicep and his upper forearm, the muscles, tendons, and ligaments on the inside part of that elbow have been obliterated. The courtroom video screen freezes on that graphic image. When you fire an AR-15 at someone from close range, this is what it looks like. I guarantee you, ladies and gentlemen, the defendant had no clue what his gun was capable of. He didn't even bother to pay any attention to it, didn't concern himself with what he would be doing to other people. But this is what happened. Let's not flinch away from this. It's important that we understand what that gun was capable of that night. It killed two people, and it did this to Mr. Grosskreutz's arm. When those shootings occurred that I just played for you, what would a reasonable person in the defendant's position at that time think. The good news is, ladies and gentlemen, you're gonna tell us. As part of your decision in this case, you will represent the reasonable person, of ordinary and prudent person, and you will put yourself in the defendant's shoes that night. I submit to you that at the time of those shootings, a reasonable person in the defendant's shoes would have known that he had provoked Joseph Rosenbaum, by pointing his gun at someone else, that the defendant had put someone else at risk of dying by doing that. The defendant should have known that the crowd was aware of the fact that he had just shot someone and that they felt their lives were in danger. That is reasonable. It is also reasonable to understand that at that point, Gage Grosskreutz had just witnessed all of this. He had heard the defendant had shot someone He'd heard the defendant lie about it. He saw the defendant shoot at 
jump kick man at close range, miraculously missing, had seen the defendant kill Anthony Huber. Gage Grosskreutz reasonably believed his life was in danger at that moment. And he was proven correct because the defendant shot him too. So when you consider what's reasonable in this case, consider whether or not it's reasonable for a criminal to be able to shoot himself out of a crime scene. When a bank robber robs a bank and runs away and the crowd comes after him, can he just shoot anybody and claim self-defense? If someone comes up to that person and tries to stop them, tries to disarm them, like Anthony Huber did, do they forfeit their life? Did Anthony Huber forfeit his life by trying to be a hero and stop an active shooter and protect others? Is that justified? Can the defendant just kill him? In this case, the crowd was right. The crowd knew the defendant had just shot someone. When they're coming after him, they, they know he's just shot and killed Joseph Rosenbaum. But you know, not every active shooter situation is the crowd have perfect knowledge. When they're told that person running up the street just shot someone, we don't have time in the moment to go back and take a look at the body and replay the video and make a decision before going after the person with the gun. You know, we've had several police officers testify that in an active shooter situation, their first instinct, their first training is to go in and stop the threat. They don't sit there and wonder, well, maybe it was self-defense. I don't know. I'm going to, you know, let, wait and see. And every day we read about heroes that stop active shooters. That's what was going on here. And that crowd was right. And that crowd was full of heroes. And that crowd did something that, honestly, I'm not sure I would have had the courage to do. If I see a guy running up the street with an AR-15 and I hear he just shot somebody, my first instinct is not to approach. Anthony Huber was different. Jump kick man was different. Gage Grosskreutz was different. That doesn't make them a threat to the defendant's life. It doesn't make their lives worthless. They don't give up their right to defend themselves. They have just as much right as the defendant. In the next part of his closing, Prosecutor Binger offers the jury a narrative portrait of the defendant that he urges them to consider in their reflections on his actions. I told you I wanted to begin by talking about the murders committed by the defendant. Now I want to go back and put it all in context for you. And that context starts with, bruh, I'm just trying to be famous the defendant's TikTok profile. Four doors, more whores. Picture of him up in Ladysmith, probably in early May, proudly holding his new AR-15. Up until August 25th, 2020, this is the only time he'd ever fired that gun. Maybe put 100 rounds through it or so at that property up there with Dominic Black. They purchased that gun on that same trip. The defendant admitted he knew as a matter of law he could not buy that gun because he was only 17. Yet he wants to tell you that he thought legally he could possess it, which didn't make a lot of sense to me. We don't have a lot of defendants come in and say, well, I possess cocaine. I knew I couldn't buy it, but I thought I could possess it. No, it's not the way it works. Dominic Black conducted what we call a straw purchase for the defendant. He purchased that gun for someone who was not legally allowed to purchase it for themselves. 
I'm prosecuting Dominic Black for that, as you know, just like I'm prosecuting Joshua Zeminski. Because what Dominic Black did was wrong. And we don't tolerate that. The agreement was Dominic Black was going to keep that gun until the defendant turned 18. It was Dominic Black's gun. It was legally his. And the defendant knew that it was going to be held on to until he turned 18, that he was not going to have it until that birthday. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Prosecutor Binger moves on to describe for the jury the lethal power of Kyle Rittenhouse's semi-automatic weapon. I want to focus a little bit on this AR-15 because I think it's important when you consider the recklessness of the defendant's conduct, how much he knew, cared, or didn't know about this deadly weapon. He'd only fired it that one time, maybe a hundred rounds through it. He loaded the gun with full metal jacket ammunition, which I'll talk about a little bit more. He wanted it because he said it looked cool, didn't seem to know or care much about the type of ammunition or the type of gun. You had a couple of witnesses tell us in this trial, and I just, I could not believe it. A a gun is a gun is a gun. Don't, don't even start with that. And a bullet is a bullet. No, it is not. It is not. And anybody who says that is ignorant and reckless because there are some important distinctions here. Full metal jacket ammunition is capable of piercing body armor and squad cars. Ryan Balch talked about how full metal jacket ammunition is designed, and this is a former Army infantryman, is designed to go through a target like a deer or a person and continue on. He says it can hit a target 550 yards away. That's five and a half football fields. And he explained that he had a handgun that night which he put hollow point ammunition on. And that's what he was planning on using for self-defense. Because hollow point ammunition acts differently. It's going to hit its target, so you will hit what you hit, but you're not going to put the rest of the community at risk, especially on a night when there are hundreds of people out on the streets in our heavy residential area. We can see on that map the car source, there are houses, there are churches, there are daycares, there are schools nearby and you're firing full metal jacket ammunition around. I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, that that AR-15 had no lawful or legitimate purpose that night. Now, the Second Amendment allows people to carry guns. That is true. There are people who can't carry guns, convicted felons, for example. But, generally speaking, I'm not saying people don't have the right to carry a gun. What I'm saying is that AR-15 did not accomplish any of the goals that these folks said it was going to. So, for example, Ryan Balch says the handgun is what he was going to use for self-defense. Several witnesses agreed you can't point this gun or shoot this gun at people to protect property. So if you're going to protect the car source building, 
How is this gun going to help with that? The defendant has admitted the gun was useless when he was going to treat people as a medic because it got in the way. He had to take it off and hand it to someone. So you can't use it as a medic. You can't use it to protect the building. So what's it there for? Well, it looks pretty imposing, and it has some deterrence value, but Jason Lukowski, Dominic Black, and Ryan Balch all said they never actually intended to use their guns. So why is it there? The defendant was wearing a sling that night. He purchased that sling at Jelinski's that afternoon. The purpose of the sling was so the gun couldn't be taken away, wouldn't fall off, he wouldn't lose possession of it. It was designed to help him retain possession of that gun. And he loaded it with 30 rounds, the full magazine, capable of killing 30 people or more. Why do you need 30 rounds of full metal jacket armor to protect a building? This AR-15 is completely incompatible with the role of a medic. Richard McGinnis testified he's been to demonstrations in Seattle, Portland, Washington, D.C., New York, Minneapolis. He's never seen anyone walking around claiming to be a medic with an AR-15. And certainly when you see someone like that, it doesn't exactly send a warm, fuzzy message. Oh, come to me. I'm here to help. And the defendant acknowledged he had to take off his AR-15 to treat people. No serious, credible medic wears an AR-15 slung around their body. That's because the defendant was a fraud. He was not an AMT. He lied. He lied to the press. He's being interviewed by Richie McGinnis, who he hears is a member of the media, and he says, I'm a certified EMT. You're lying. You're absolutely lying. Jason Lukowski and Dominic Black said the defendant had to borrow his medical supplies from us. Binger seeks to emphasize for the jury this portrait of Rittenhouse as a fraudulent and dangerous wannabe. This is an emergency situation. Everybody's anticipating violence. Everybody's prepared for people to be hurt, harmed, injured. And yet the defendant's going to go there and walk around claiming to be a medic? He's like a quack doctor practicing without a license. That puts lives at risk. And one of the things I had Gage Grosskreutz testify about is that tattoo on his right arm which said, first, do no harm, which is one of the precepts, one of the fundamental tenets of the practice of medicine. First, do no harm. So how do we evaluate the defendant's performance as a medic that night? Well, on one hand, uh, he wrapped up an ankle and I think maybe helped somebody who got a cut on their hand. Yay. On the other hand, he killed two people, blew off Gage Grosskreutz's arm, and put two more lives in jeopardy. So, you know, when we balance your role as a medic that night, I don't give you any credit. He showed no remorse for his victims, never tried to help anybody that he hurt, and even on the witness stand, when he testified on Wednesday, he broke down crying about himself, not about anybody that he hurt that night. No remorse, no concern for anyone else. For him to call himself a medic is an insult to anyone like Gage Grosskreutz, who spent hundreds of hours training and working hard to become an EMT. It's an insult. The defendant made a series of reckless decisions that night, going armed with an AR-15 
at 17 years old when he knew he shouldn't have done so. Because that gun is normally locked in a safe that he doesn't have access to. And it's not even legally his. He's out after a citywide curfew. He's intentionally and knowingly entering into a dangerous situation. And he expects it because he brings along his AR-15 and some body armor. So don't tell me you didn't know. He brings along no non-lethal means of defense, which means his only option is to kill. I don't know about a lot of you, but I remember that night. I didn't come down here. I don't think most reasonable people did, in part because we all knew it was going to be violent and dangerous. Most reasonable people, to the extent they came out, they were gone by then because you don't willingly put yourself in this situation unless you want it, unless you're looking for it, unless you want trouble. Binger then returns to his theme that Kyle Rittenhouse was part of a band of chaos tourists and that all reasonable observers knew that these armed outsiders were contributing to the chaos more than they were helping anyone. Now to put this in perspective, at this time here in our community, there were people who were scared. There were people who were worried about themselves, their homes, their families, their business. That's understandable. But this is different. There are also people out there who were exercising their First Amendment right to assemble and to have free speech because of whatever they believed in. And they have that right too. But that's not what we're talking about. The curfew the riots, the arson, the looting that we'd seen on those prior nights, roadblocks set up around downtown, closed exits on the interstates. All of this was sending the message to reasonable people, go away. Don't come down here. Who was left at 11.45 at night? Most reasonable people had gone home before the curfew or never even came at all. But the defendants down there, he says, because he wants you to believe he's protecting car source. Even though he had no actual ties or genuine concern for this building, you have this caravan of people from West Bend, Ryan Balch, Jason Lakowski, Joanne Fiedler, coming down from some other community, having no idea what's going on here at Kenosha, having no idea what businesses are, having never dealt with car source before, just injecting themselves into this situation. Car source that night was empty. The owners testified. They moved all the cars off the lot. They took the tools out from inside. And they didn't even feel the need to protect that building. So who's there? These guys with their AR-15s are just wannabe soldiers, acting tough, trying to manufacture some personal connection to this event, furthering their own personal agenda just a small part of the deluge of chaos tourists we saw here in Kenosha trying to feed off of what we were going through. Despite everything we did to try and tell them, go away, stay out. Did those owners, Sam and Sal, ask anyone to protect their business? You know, I called them to, to the stand because I wanted you to hear from them. I had their statement, but I wanted you to hear from them. And I'm sure you formed your own impressions about them. I'm not here to tell you that I believe what they said on the witness stand. 
I don't think it really matters much, except I wanted you to have a flavor of who these people were and what was going on at that building. What was interesting to me is that text message from the defendant to Sam asking for the address of CarSource, even though the defendant says he's already been there. It didn't make any sense to me. It's not hard to find if you've driven past there every day. You know, Kenosha is one of the easiest cities in Wisconsin to navigate. It's all east, west, north, south. How hard is it to find this place? But the agreement was the defendant was supposed to stay at the 59th Street location. There's another group at 63rd. It was their responsibility. And the defendant testified that when the shootings occurred at 1145 or 1150 at night, he didn't even know if that other group was still there or if they'd left. But crucially, you heard the testimony of Kriston Harris, who's out there reporting for his rundown live, and he's making some video. And he tells the defendant, stay on your property. Don't go out in the streets and engage with these protesters because you're just making it worse and you're escalating the situation. He tells the defendant specifically that just 20 minutes before the shootings. Kriston Harris probably said that because he knows this is a crowd that is feeling threatened by the defendant and his group. Richie McGinnis testified when he left the Stella Hotel and immediately ran over to 59th Street, he saw guys up on the roof and he felt threatened. These guns, he said, were the thing that changed the dynamic for him. Drew Hernandez, we showed video of Drew Hernandez having laser sights pointed at him. And he said he felt threatened. He thought someone was pointing a gun from the roof and putting his life in jeopardy. These are two people who are veterans. They've been to protests in Seattle, Portland, Washington, D.C., New York. They've been through this before. And yet here in little old Kenosha, the defendant's group made them fear for their lives. That's the kind of impact these AR-15s had. The crowd is yelling at the defendant's group, stop pointing your guns at us, stop pointing these laser pointers at us. And the defendant sees this. He's well aware of the fact that the crowd out on the street is hostile. They don't react well to him. And he knows that by 1135 at night, this crowd is all the way down there south of 60th. That's where they're at. So if I go down there, I need to be prepared and I need to expect that these folks are not on my side. And with that, we conclude this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. Join us on our next installment as we continue our examination of Prosecutor Binger's closing with his shift in focus to the defense team's efforts to demonize and dehumanize Joseph Rosenbaum. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced by Chris Taracone and Aaron Karenik, and it was edited by Chris Taracone. Our consulting producer is Brittany Bookbinder. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and Trial Audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty the trial of Kyle Rittenhouse.